0: following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. All right. We started 2 Peter last week, and we talked about being a dual loss of Jesus, a servant of Jesus, and what that looks like. This morning's passage is going to follow up on that, which makes sense because it's the next portion of the passage. And as we were singing the last song about Jesus being good just reminded me that what's offered in this second section of Peter is a way in which God reveals his goodness. We mentioned last week that the servant of Jesus gets the privilege of participating in the divine nature. All right, that's a vague term and a big idea. What does it look like? Peter moves right into this, and that's what we're going to talk about in this morning's section of Scripture. So I'm going to start reading at 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. By the way, I typically read from a translation called The Voice. I suspect if you're following along in your Bibles, there's slightly different wording. Uh, That's just the nature of different translations. To achieve this, and here Peter is referring to the sharing of the divine nature in verse 4, you'll need to add or supply or equip virtue to your faith, and then knowledge to your virtue. To knowledge add discipline, to discipline, add endurance, to endurance, add godliness, to godliness, add affection for others as sisters and brothers, and to affection, at last, add love. If you possess these traits and you multiply them, you will never be ineffective or unproductive in your relationship with and true knowledge of our Lord Jesus the anointed. That's a pretty amazing verse. If you possess these traits and multiply them, you will never be ineffective or unproductive in your relationship with and true knowledge of our Lord Jesus the anointed. If you don't have these qualities, then you'll be nearsighted, you'll be blind, forgetting that your past sins have been washed away. So let's talk about what it means to share in the divine nature and we do this by equipping ourselves. So there's a Greek word here, I could not find a place online that gave me a pronunciation, so here we go. Epicoregion. we're just gonna run with it, Uh, Epicoregion. It comes from a word that means leader of the chorus, so you'll see on the screen behind me. In Greek theater, there was this group of people called the chorus, that's who you see on the left side of the screen. They were kind of the narrator for Greek theater. Very different kind of doing stage production, and everything was very different in a literary sense back then. So, you would have actors acting out certain things, but the chorus was in the background, and they would keep chiming in and saying things and adding important information. It was a large group, but it was fairly important. Well, eventually, uh, there began to be these people who arose who began to fund these choruses because they were expensive. So wealthy people would voluntarily uh, give money, usually, like I said, at great cost. And so this terminology and this word that's used here is borrowing from that image. So the original audience would have made this connection in their mind. When Peter says, you're going to need to equip your faith. Okay, so I'm going to need to give something generously, lavishly, It's, it's probably gonna cost me something. Uh, This, actually the Greeks began to use this to the cost of equipping an army. And then they had a moral sense in which it was the cost that it would take to equip yourself with virtues because the Greeks were big on that idea also. So Peter's audience understands, all right, to add to my faith, to build on my faith, to move into this participation with God, it's going to be something that's costly. I'm going to have to be generous with this. But if I do this... It's going to practically overwhelm my faith with the kind of gifts that will enable my faith to flourish. So as we see this list that's coming up, we're going to see, uh, I I don't like to call it a template because that seems like it's too cut and dried, like you do this, God must do this. This is a way of talking about moving more deeply into the faith that God has given to us. Uh, I think this is borrowing language of what I would call cooperating with God. And actually, next week, when we get to the very next section in this first chapter of 2 Peter, we're going to have to talk about that some more because Peter keeps talking about it. But think of this verse from Philippians. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And note the contrast. We work. We work out our salvation. And yet, God's at work in us. The the Bible likes to hold things in tension with this idea of God's sovereignty and our free will. That there is some sense we probably won't fully understand on this side of heaven where we cooperate with the work that God does. Or God does a work and then he empowers us to do something in response. But we see both of these things at play. It's a sanctifying faith in which our human will cooperates with God's divine will. One commentary gave an example of the parable of the ten virgins. If you're not familiar with this parable, there's a group of ten virgins. They've been invited to go to a wedding feast, and they're waiting for the bridegroom to come get them and take them to the wedding feast. But it's nighttime, and they all have lamps. These lamps will light the way. While the five wise ones have plenty of oil in their lamp. The five foolish ones didn't. Their lamps go out. And they're like, "Uh, hey, we got to go get some more oil. So they leave. And while they're gone, the bridegroom comes and takes the others to the wedding feast. There was a German theologian named John Bengel. He says, the flame is that which is imparted to us by God and from God without our own labor. But the oil is that which a man must pour into life by his own study and his faithful effort so that the flame is fed and increased. I like that image. So the idea here with this list, this list is the oil. God gives us the flame. There would be no flame without the supernatural work of Jesus in our lives. But there's things that God uh, allows, encourages, enables us to do. That is adding the oil to this lamp of our lives so that it can burn more brightly. So you're going to see a list. This was common at the time the Bible was written. You see it in all kinds of literature. A lot of people were illiterate. So they would make lists of things so that it was easy to memorize. I suspect with this list there was probably uh, some imagery or like the first letter spelled out something. I don't know. It was something that was handy for people to remember what particular things they were talking about. So let's get into the list. The first thing is faith. I hear a lot of discussion about faith, especially if you're online. There's a lot of internet atheists who will mock faith. And they will offer definitions of faith that I don't recognize, quite frankly. I'd like to offer you a a definition of faith that I find very helpful for a guy named Tim McGrew, who teaches down at Western. He says, faith is trusting, holding to, and acting on what one has good reasons to believe is true, even in the face of difficulties. I like the progression he offers. You trust, you hold to, and then you act on it fact, I think the Bible typically portrays faith as a lifestyle more than simply some type of mental agreement. Now, I think it involves mental agreement, believing that Jesus is who he said he was, that our sins are forgiven because of his crucifixion, that we're given new life because of his physical resurrection. Those are things we wrap our minds around. But when the Bible talks about faith, it's not just some sequestered experience in your head. And when the Bible talks about building faith, which it is here, it's not building simply how you think about things. It's always going to be a discussion of what does it look like to live my life in such a way that I trust God with every aspect of who I am and what I do. So I would summarize it this way. Faith is a lifestyle of confident trust. We're confident. We believe certain things to be true to us as revealed in Scripture. But then this lifestyle says, okay, because I believe it to be true, it's going to move out of simply being in my head. It's going to transform how I live my life. So the first step is faith. Then we begin to add things. First of all, we add virtue. This is a Greek word called erite. This was very popular even among the Greeks at that time. They pursued virtue, or some people translated this as courage or simply having moral character. So when the Greeks used it, They would describe land that was fertile. So this was something uh, about reality where whatever crop you were growing was abundant. Uh, They used it to describe the life of the gods, which seems kind of odd because if you've studied mythology, uh, the gods were a bit of a mess. But by this time in Greek history, even their own philosophers were starting to go, okay, wait a minute, Uh, I don't think those are actually gods because gods ought to be exemplary in, uh, in what they do. So they would use arete to describe their idea of, in some ways, perfection. But it also described not backing down in the face of challenges, so people with backbone. These are all captured in this idea of virtue. So we see that part of this lifestyle of confident trust is joining a commitment to moral excellence, to what we see in the person and the character of Jesus, and then we hold tightly to it, even in the midst of challenges or of persecution. So we have faith. We add to our faith virtue. We add to our virtue knowledge. So this is the word gnosis. Now, last week I talked about Gnosticism. Don't try to compare the two this morning, because the Gnostics went a really weird direction with this idea of knowledge. All this word means is practical wisdom. You've learned something, and now once again, it's left your head and has gone down into your life. It's changed you. It's more than just head knowledge. And I think it's worth noting that knowledge comes after virtue. Uh, Knowledge in the hands of non-virtuous people can be disastrous. There's been a slogan that's been around for a while, knowledge is power. Have you seen this? It's very popular in schools. I used to see big billboards in the mall. This idea is that if we simply have more knowledge, all will be well because if we know things, we gain power from the things we know. Well, that, that's probably true. Um, but if you educate a moral fool, you just get a powerful moral fool. Knowledge itself doesn't make people better. Knowledge is just knowledge. Knowledge. The kind of person who receives knowledge, that's deeply important. Two different people can gain the same knowledge and one commits horrible evil and the other commits tremendous good. Virtue matters. Listen, if you love knowledge, if you're the kind of person you like to go to college, you like to study and read, you like to stay caught up on current events, you want to know and understand the world, Kudos to you. I think that is very, very important. But I'll be honest. If you're not pursuing virtue as you pursue knowledge, we're all in trouble. Because the power that you gain from that knowledge will have a ripple effect into the world. I I would much rather we be people who pursue virtue than people who pursue knowledge. And I love pursuing knowledge. Don't get me wrong. I, I think as Christians within the scope of our ability and opportunity we ought to be pursuers of knowledge we're people of truth but lord knows if we're not adding that to a virtuous foundation trouble is sure to follow so we have faith we add to this this courage this moral excellence this pursuit of what it looks like for the crop of our life to flourish and then we add to that knowledge. So now we have this fertile ground in our lives that God's already at work transforming. So now we bring truth in. We learn about the world. The fourth step then is discipline, self-discipline. You're, once again, your translations will say different things. And, and I would actually think that a person of faith and then virtue, this pursuit of excellence, and then this pursuit of truth, but if you're that far, by that point you'll recognize self disciplines a big deal. Simply this ability to not be blown about by all our passions. The word used here, and I don't want to get lost in the weeds of semantics. I happen to really like language studies, and I recognize not everybody here does. Perhaps very few of you. So I'll try to make this quick. The Greeks talked a lot about the struggle between reason and passion. And they actually had like four quadrants. And the word used here is the quadrant or the word where reason fights against passage and, and wins. So it doesn't discard passion. It doesn't necessarily say passion is bad. It just says that at the end of the day, we as passionate people have to have our passions guarded or regulated or guided in a particular way. I think, honestly, it's, an, it's a realistic view of life. I mean, What does Paul say? He writes about his passions. The things I don't want to do, I do. He has this big thing about, what do I do with this war inside of me? And Paul's conclusion is, thank God I have God. But it's a very honest recognition that there is a war inside of me. And this is the word. This word is acknowledging you have passions that want to come out in various ways but you're also a reasonable, rational person. God has given you the gift of a brain, and as you are moving from faith to virtue to knowledge, now you're beginning to apply that as you look at how you live your lives. So I I would argue this. Being a Christian does not remove our passions. Being a Christian tames our passions, or perhaps you could say it orders them or directs them. Last week we said we become a doulos or a slave of Christ. It seems like one of the benefits of that is that our passions, because they are a slave to Christ, are also become a slave to us rather than a master of us. I I remember, I think I've talked about this for a while up front. Uh, I, I remember when I was moving out of my years of addiction to pornography that I was so frustrated with the difficulty of the challenge. I prayed that God would take away my my passion, my lust, my my sexual passion, sexual desire. Um, God didn't. And sorry that you have to hear this, Vince, but that's been a good thing for my wife and I. All right? And I realized at that time that... uh, God didn't intend to take away that thing that was difficult for me at that time. He tended to order it properly. Not just for our good, but for his glory. It wasn't that the passion I had was wrong. It's that it was broken. It was disordered. Had to be reordered. Does that make sense? Um, I've told my boys this um, because I remember my teenage years And this is, I'm sure is true for guys and girls both, but I'm a guy, so I'm going with my experience. Uh, Man, when hormones are raging when you're a team, that's a difficult time. And I've told my boys, uh, listen, the best way to deal with sexual passion is not to try to ignore it or pretend it's not there or pray for it to be gone. What we do with sexual passion is we surrender it to Christ because we need it ordered, not taken away. It's part of how God made us. It's part of a good gift he has given us. And in fact, when expressed in the proper context of marriage, it's a fantastic gift. We don't need to be freed from that. We need it to be surrendered to Christ. So the question I would have in general when it comes to the passions of our lives is, is our passion directed in the service of God? Is our passion ordered toward the good. What does it look like to have a holy outlet for the passions that we have such that they direct us toward using them in a way that is good for the world and brings God glory? So I'll give a couple other examples. Um, I, When I was a kid, man, I struggled with anger. And I know there's a number of you in the room here who have really struggled with anger. I get it. I don't think God wants to free us of anger because there's a righteous form of anger. God himself is angry at certain things. And if God can be angry and be holy, surely we can be angry and be holy. Like angry at sin, like there's clear things in the Bible we ought to be angry at. We ought to be angry at injustice. But there's a difference between an unguided and unholy anger and a guided and holy anger. Part of what this journey looks like, faith, virtue, knowledge, discipline, is taking the time to be honest before God and others and saying, how do I channel this particular passion in a way that builds the world rather than destroys it? that builds up people around me rather than hurts people around me, and then ultimately reveals something about the heart of God. Uh, I suspect part of this discipline is turning lust or greed to righteous desire. It's okay to desire things. God made a beautiful world with fantastic things, and we look around and we see uh, that's cool. Right, okay, so there's a righteous desire that honors the beauty and goodness of God's creation. But that can easily be broken or distorted into an unrighteous and unholy desire that now begins to use people, that now begins to be envious and jealous in the worst sense of the word, right? So it's not the desire that's wrong, it's the ordering of the desire. I suspect this can include things like the love of money, becoming the love of making money in order to give money in the service of God and of others. So if you have the gift to make money, make money for the glory of God. If you love money, then pray that God helps you to reorder this such that your love of money isn't actually a love of money. It's a love of being given something that you can pass on to help the world flourish for the glory of God. Does that make sense about the reordering of passions? And if you come to Message Plus, we could talk about, there's a lot you could unpack here. Just trying to give this idea that one of the things that's offered to those of us who surrender our life to Christ, we're a doulos, we're a slave or we're a servant. Peter says, listen, you will begin to participate in the divine nature. Awesome. Part of that participation includes a self-discipline where there was not a self-discipline before because now the power of God is working in us and building something that we could never do on our own. All right, fifth step is endurance. So a writer named Cicero defined a similar word this way as a voluntary and daily suffering of hard and difficult things for the sake of honor and usefulness. That was the way the word was understood at the time. So odds are good. If you have faith, you're you're seeking to add virtue, you're getting this wisdom that comes with practical knowledge, and self-control is beginning to become this obvious thing in your life, I suspect endurance and steadfastness will follow. Part of the reason is because you are now seeing what it looks like to be transformed by Christ in you. And now you have a track record of being a new kind of person where you you might have before hated who you were. You were frustrated. Your life was characterized by failure, and it's exhausting. And now you start to have this track record of, whoa. So Peter said that if I surrender myself to Christ, he'll do a work in me that's going to transform even my nature, and I'm, I'm seeing it. And when you get that kind of momentum going, it is so much easier when you're facing hard times, you're facing trials. You go, okay, it's hard now, but I have seen what God is faithfully doing or enabling me to do in my life. And I'm in. I'm not giving up on this. I see the trajectory of where this is going. A dude from Alexandria named Didymus wrote this about Job, and this kind of combines the self-control section with this idea of endurance. It's not that the righteous man will be without feeling, although he must patiently bear the things which afflict him. It's a true virtue, when he deeply feels the things he toils against, but nevertheless despises sorrows for the sake of God. The very specific Greek word used here actually has more than just endurance, though. This idea has to do with anticipation. Think of Hebrews 12. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, adored the cross, despising the shame. This word captures the idea there is joy set before us, that even in the midst of our endurance, we see hope. So can I just offer this as a word of encouragement? I don't know where all of you are in your life. I know where some of you are right now. There is no moment in the life of the Christian that is without hope. Now, I can't tell you if the ultimate hope is going to be on the other side of heaven or this side of heaven. But I do know this. No matter your situation and no matter my situation, as followers of Jesus, we always have hope. We always have hope. If you can't see the hope where you are at, can, can you please gather some people from this church community around you and pour your heart out to them? Maybe you need to hear stories from them about how God has been faithful in their lives. We did it this summer for a couple Sundays. Maybe you need to hear from others. The testimony of the saints is an important thing that goes along with the truth and the word of God just to remind us that, There was always hope, either on this side of heaven or in the life to come. We had to endure its godliness. This particular word is apparently very hard to translate. Uh, It's probably best to understand it like religion or worship, piety. I know religion isn't a popular word to use right now, but that's kind of the idea here. and it, It includes this. You simultaneously worship God and serve others. So once again... It's not just a faith that is vertically oriented. It's not just about you and God or me and God. It's also about us. So everything up to this point is leading to this understanding that true worship of God is first of all to God, but that it translates such that we serve others who bear the image of God. Uh, To the Greeks, Socrates embodied this. Uh, Socrates would have died about the time the Old Testament was closed, just to give you a bit of historical context. But one writer said this about Socrates. This was not a biblical writer, by the way. He was so pious and devoutly religious, he would take no step apart from the will of heaven so just and upright that he never did even a trifling injury to any living soul, so self-controlled, so temperate, that he never at any time chose the sweeter instead of the better. He was so sensible, so wise, and so prudent that in distinguishing the better from the worse, he never erred. Okay, that is definitely an exaggeration about Socrates. Uh, He actually bragged that he had a demon. Uh, That's a different sermon. But you get the idea of what they thought about when they used this particular word. So you're, you're at this point now in this list where you're now adding godliness. Okay, this, this is this devout religion. You take no step apart from the will of heaven. You don't even do trifling injuries, self-control. We already mentioned that. Um, you'll choose the better over the sweeter. That simply means that you do the right thing instead of the fun thing. Sensible, wise, prudent, all that good stuff. Uh, for the Romans, they use a different word, the word pietas, which, for those of you who are sculpture fans, that's Michelangelo's statue. It actually captures this idea well. It is a sense of duty which never left a man. Duty first to the gods, then to father and to family, to son and daughter, to people and nation. Uh, the sculpture is of Mary holding Jesus after the crucifixion. And it captures this idea of duty, well, to God, this is Christ and God in the flesh, and to family. So this idea of godliness, once again, is a well-rounded worship. God first, others second, and a a dedication in our lives to doing what we can, I'll I'll phrase it this way, to honor others as image bearers of God. Which leads very naturally to the next step, which is uh, affection. Brotherly love, sisterly love, the word Philadelphia comes from this. And basically, it's just this idea. As you are being transformed, you will very very clearly value people over things. People begin to matter deeply. They're image bearers of God. Even if they're not a brother or sister in Christ, they are still image bearers of God. We share in a common humanity. And this kind of love, we're not yet to agape. That's the final step. This kind of love is a dedication to the good of those around us. There was a philosopher at the time who would have been a contemporary of Peter, actually. And uh, he was pretty famous for saying that the reason he didn't get married and have what he called snotty-nosed kids was because he wanted to have an impact on the world. And he said, quote, how can he who has to teach humankind, and that was his job apparently, run to get something in which to heat the water to give the baby his bath. In other words, how dare these babies distract me from this grand calling of educating humanity? Uh, So I'm going to translate Peter, because I think Peter would have said, around the same time as this guy, he would have said it this way, how can those who want to teach humanity not run and sacrifice for the others? Like, that's part of it. If you're not willing to go out of your way for people, you might not be ready to teach. <laughs> Does that make sense? We've got to value people. Just value people because they're image bearers of God. Whatever when projects become more important, we're in trouble. Whatever people are a distraction, from the super important thing I have to do, that's a yellow flag. That something might be disordered in how we're thinking about life. And I'm not talking about the rhythms of needing vacations and breaks and having jobs. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about this sense that, and I, you don't have to raise your hand if you're with me on this, but I've been through times in my life where people annoyed me. How dare you distract me from the important work that God has called me to? But what is one of the most important things God has called me to? People. Isn't that the point? Jesus didn't give his life for things, did he? Give gave his life for people. Now, all the world will be renewed as, as a byproduct of that, which is awesome. But Jesus came for people. The people of Jesus are here for Yeah, we've got to remember this order of priority in our lives. And that brings us to the last step, which is love, which is specifically now agape love, which we talk a lot about. It's the deliberate choice to work for the highest good of another. It's sacrifice for that goal. It's something that comes from our will, not our emotions. By the way, you might be hearing connections back to the very beginning of this list on some of these things. It's deliberately loving the unlovable when there's nothing that makes us want to love them. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And it is a sign that we're sharing in the divine nature. First John four, verses seven and eight. Let us love one another. Love us from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Those who do not agape love do not know God, for God is agape love. This is a daunting verse. If we say we love God and we hate our brother, We are a liar, scripture. We can't separate these things. Love of God, agape love of God, translates into agape love of others. They are connected in such a way that they cannot be separated. If you do not have one, you do not have the other, is the clear teaching of scripture. Now, we could probably spend a month of a sermon series on what it looks like to live out agape love practically. Once again, I invite you to Message Plus if you want to talk more about it. So last week, I noted that the fact that God calls us to be a doulos, a servant that will be uh, transformed such that we share in his nature, it's a fantastic calling, and it's it's a foundation for Christian self-worth. God wants you. God wants you. He calls you to be a part of his household. The language Peter uses, his servant. Other language of Scripture says son or daughter. But God wants you to be part of his household. And we've said this before. If God calls you, he will equip you. Okay, so he, here is the equipment. Second Peter shows you what it looks like that God offers equipment. And I'll use Ephesians imagery now that we put on as we do this cooperation with God. So this is the second part about our foundation of self-worth is that you can participate being transformed into the divine nature. You can participate. You. There are no exceptions in this room. Wherever you are, whatever has been done to you, whatever you're doing now, God calls you into his household. And when God calls you into his household, he equips you to be a part of this transformation that he's doing in your life. The end of the section we read, if you possess these traits and multiply them, you will never be ineffective or unproductive in your relationship and your epigenosis, that was our word last week, of our Lord Jesus, the anointed. So, No matter where you are in life, if you are on this path, note this last verse, your life is not useless and unproductive. Your life is actually fruitful. Uh, I feel like I've had a lot of conversations over the years with people who feel like they are stuck in a place in life where they are worthless, they're doing nothing important, their life doesn't matter, uh, they have no idea why they're even here, where's meaning and value and, and purpose in this life? Uh, Peter says, if you possess these traits and multiply them, you will never be ineffective and you will never be unproductive in your relationship with and your true knowledge of Jesus. And listen, if you are productive and effective in your relationship with Jesus, that matters. It gives profound significance and worth to all of us. Lord, that, that feels like the right place to end. That through Christ we have confidence that our lives have profound meaning. That you offer to us the privilege of being part of your household, of being a servant, of being a slave who was transformed into your image, of being a son and a daughter. Whatever imagery is there, Lord, all of them lead us to the conclusion that as you bring us in to your household, into the kingdom, there is a work that begins in us, an incredible work. And no matter who we are when we entered the kingdom, no matter who we are now, you who have begun a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. Lord, give us the hope that comes with that promise. Give us the peace that comes with that promise. And Lord, give us the steadfastness and the courage to run the race with endurance, as Paul writes. Lord, my prayer for all of us is that we experience this growth, this moving more deeply, moving forward into what you offer to us. Give us the wisdom not to believe we're just doing this on our own power and somehow that makes us awesome. Give us the wisdom and the humility to see that it's Christ in us that's the hope of glory. Give us grace as we live with those around us, as we're all at different points in this journey, that we reflect your love and your patience. And may we, all, may we do all this for your glory ultimately. We pray this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.